Today we look at some of the most important truths we shall ever hear, Father, central, pivotal truths, truths about you, about us, about your marvelous, astonishing work and will. Oh, open our eyes and hearts as we hear your words, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, one doesn't have to be a highly paid analyst to look around and see that the world is a mess, that misery is everywhere. Never have people been more prosperous and more miserable and more fragile than they seem to be now. There's division, there's strife, there are hardened lines such as I've never seen in my long life. Things that everybody used to agree about are now points of argument and legislation to force us all to think what the government wants us to think. But at the heart of all of this lie two truths, I observe. One is that miserable people think that some external change is needed to make them happy. Some law must be changed, taxes, riches, health, the environment, the way other people treat us, something out there has to change, then I will be happy. That's one truth. And the other truth is that the infinite personal God of Scripture can be no part of the problem or the solution. So that in mind, we ask, what is our real central problem and what is the real true solution to that problem? The answer comes with understanding the entire story of the entire Bible because the entire Bible speaks to exactly that. What is the core of all our miseries and what is the one sole solution to all our miseries? So let's look at this together part by part in three parts. In the first movement, Roman numeral one, starting with the beginning of the Bible, we're going to look at scene one where we see God with us. That's what go in the blanks by Roman numeral one, God with us. I hope you all are filling in the blanks, otherwise can't look at it later. God with us. And as we open the pages of Scripture what we see is our world as created in Genesis chapter 1. And uh, we uh, obviously begin with the words in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then comes God's very systematic, very organized procedure of creating all that we have, all that we see, all that we live in. Those six days of creation in which God created everything show us that God had a very exact plan by which he proceeded to design everything to put man here for him. That's the crown of his creation. All of it leads up to and climaxes with that. And so what we see is it's very important to reflect on the fact that what we see and what we're surrounded with, and particularly what we see in Genesis chapter 1, is creation, not nature. I think people use the word nature so they don't have to think about the fact that it was created. You use the word nature, you can think it just happened. It just jumbled by some... I don't even, you, you shouldn't even get to use the word process, because process implies a goal. And if you have no God, you've got no process. You've just got um, a bunch of happy accidents and unhappy accidents, and somehow here we are today. All this organization and beauty, and yet no mind behind it. That's what unbelief calls us to think. But, but Scripture shows us better. What we look is created. We see creation. And Scripture makes a lot about that. That looking in creation, we see the, the brilliance of God expressed. Psalm 19, verse 1. Psalm 19, 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. 
The expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So we look up and we see in the vastness of space the brilliance and the power of God shining back at us. But no less on earth, Jeremiah 10, 12 says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he stretched out the heavens. Jeremiah 10, 12. Everywhere we look, we see an expression of the unspeakably brilliant mind of God the Creator. And something to reflect as we think about uh, Genesis 131, God does not experience what every artist or, or created creator experiences. For all of us, there's that gap between the idea we have and what we end up making. Uh, you've felt it if you've ever, unless you're a trained artist, you've ever tried to draw the face of some loved one. What could be simpler? <laughs> there's the face right there. You've got a hand that normally works just fine, a pen that works, and a piece of paper that's blank. How hard can it be to put that down there? And what ends up down there doesn't look anything like that out there. Why is that? God doesn't know anything about that. God created exactly what he meant to create. Creation as it came from his hand perfectly expressed. So that's why Genesis 131 has his exaltation. He looks at everything he created and behold it was what? Very good. Very good. It was exactly what he meant. And so it reflects him. So that's why we have, number two, paradise, a paradise of pristine purity. Real, live paradise, as God created it, of pristine purity. No violence, no decay, no rot, nothing but perfection. You, you see something more about this by looking at what it is when God restores the world to this state. We read some of it in Isaiah 11. You could say Isaiah 2 as well. That's what goes in those blanks. Isaiah 2 and 11. We read about paradise restored and we see uh, that in God's kingdom there will be no war. There will be no violence, and not just between men, but also in nature there will be no violence. The, the bear, the wolf, the lamb, all will live in harmony. Lions will eat straw, as the cattle do. They won't eat other animals. There won't be bloodshed even in the animal kingdom, let alone among men. And because all will be peace, all will be glory, and this reflects what it was when God created it in the first chapters of Genesis. Um, and verse... Uh, 9 of Isaiah 11 gives the real reason because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters fill the sea. The knowledge of the glory of God. Everything glorifies God now, but men don't acknowledge it. Then the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh. And what I want to say before we move on is what made everything so idyllic, so perfect, so paradisical, if I'm saying the word right, is God, not just because things are nice and pretty and smelled good and tasted good. It's God that made it all perfect. The brilliance of God shone forth from every atom, every molecule, every grain of sand. It reflected him. That's original creation. That's our world. Secondly, letter B, consider ourselves. Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28, you know them. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created the human race in, in our first parents, Adam and Eve, as image bearers. And the purpose of the image of God was that we would represent him. 
so that we could be like little place markers reflecting God, showing the presence of God. As we ruled over creation under God, we represented God. Psalm 8 reflects on that in verse 6. You made him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. This was God's design. That's why we were created in his image, so that we could have a relationship with him and rule for him, representing him in creation, like a, like a marker showing the presence of this sovereign. That was the purpose of the image. The power of the image is found in communion with God. Alone among uh, earthly creation, man could have communion with God. The first sound Adam heard were the words of God speaking to him. He created Adam and Eve so that they could commune with him, could have a relationship with him. And in that relationship, man and woman could find uh, perfect peace, perfect joy. They found integration. That may not sound like a great word, but it's a great word because it's the opposite of what? Disintegration. And that's what we see today. We see individuals, societies, the world disintegrated. People are disintegrated from their created sex, from each other, from the order, from God himself. Well, as as created, there was perfect integration. Man was at peace with nature, with himself, with God. He was created to enjoy that. There was no illness. There were no psychological issues. No down days, no depression, no despair, no frustration, no lostness. This was not part of our original creation. And what I want to underscore a second time is what made it so perfect was God. That God designed it this way and it was found in a relationship with God. A personal relationship between man, the image bearer, and God in whose image he was created. God filled the core of man with true peace and true joy. And so the original design brought nothing but happiness. None of the miseries that plague our world and that are just the way things are to the point where we don't even hardly notice it, none of that was the case in original creation. Now the sad thing is, that story just takes up the first two chapters of the Bible. Then, boom, it's gone to the last two chapters of the Bible, really. Everything in between is about the misery that then happens. That's Roman numeral two, which is the picture of us without God. Roman numeral two, that's what goes in the blanks. Us without God and all the misery and despair starts with the pitch. Roman numeral, uh, letter A, capital letter A, the pitch. Yes, the pitch. Uh, though I'm an Astros fan, you may think I'm thinking baseball. I don't mean baseball. I mean a sales pitch. And it's the sales pitch. What's that? Hey, well, maybe another sermon. <laughs> but it's the sales pitch that Satan brought to our, our first parents. You know, Genesis 3 starts off remarking on the craftiness of the serpent, who was uh, the tool Satan used. And uh, we just recently studied this. As he, as he comes, the pose he strikes is mankind's best friend. He doesn't come and present himself as there to lead them into misery and despair, which, in fact, he is there to do. He presents himself as somebody who just really cares about their best good. And so the first thing he sees to Eve is he sees her in this garden full of fruits. He sees her by this one tree. That's where he is. That's where he finds her. The one tree that God said, do not eat the fruit of this tree. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there she is. And so Satan comes to her and says, so did God say you can't eat anything in the garden? trying to paint God as 
as uncaring, as uh, unloving at best, as harsh and incompetent at worst. But that's the way he starts the conversation, calling the character of God into question. And so the woman says, well, no, we can eat anything except this tree. If we eat it, if we touch it, we'll die. And here's the serpent's answer in verse 4. You surely will not die, he assures her. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, the thing is, this rosy promise, you can sin your way to godhood. This rosy promise rested on a wretched premise. What's the wretched premise of his promise that you can become like God by sinning? They already were like God. They already were like God, but they were like God as a creature can only be in submission to God, in love and faith and submission to his sovereignty. Oh, but he said the real key to Godhood is to rebel against your creator, to put your wisdom up over against the wisdom of God and your will up over against the will of God. That's his pitch. And so we're brought to the ruinous payoff of this rosy promise, retching on a wretched premise. The ruinous payoff is that Eve goes for the pitch and Adam goes along with Eve. They eat the fruit, and what happens then? Letter B, the plummet into death. The pitch leads to the plummet into death. Now, just plummet is P-L-U-M-M-E-T, the plummet into death. Now, just briefly, death, we need to understand, is not just the cessation of physical life here. It's not just a stopped heart and stopped brain waves. Death is the removal and the reversal of everything that makes life, life. I dare say there are many people whose hearts are beating and brain waves working who are not alive at all. What life means as God created life, well, really, at root, it means peace with God. That's the heart of it. And from peace with God comes integration, comes happiness, comes uh, joy, comes purpose. Uh, And these are the things that make life life and make life worth living. But what they immediately knew was the removal of all that and its replacement by the opposite, and that's death. Yes, it includes a stopped heart and leads to eternity under the wrath of God. But all the miseries that precede and lead up to death, that's all part. That's all part of the package that they bought when they went for the pitch. So I'd like to look at it more fully with you and do kind of an autopsy, if you will, on this. Uh, by comparing Genesis with Romans 1, 18 through 32. That's what goes in those blanks. Romans 1, 18 through 32. And Paul reflects on the very thing we see here in Genesis. And we see death presented in, uh, I'll say, three aspects. We'll take three aspects. Three aspects of death. And the first is spiritual death. Spiritual death, letter A. Spiritual death happens instantly. They lose their knowledge of communion with and intimacy with God instantly. So here comes the sound of, well, first of all, before I even get there, their eyes were opened as promised. 
but what followed was not as promised. What did they see when their eyes were opened? Their nakedness. Now, that had never been a problem. They were created beautifully by God. But now they were guilty. Now they were ashamed, and rightly so, because they were guilty. They had a guilt complex for a very simple reason. They had guilt. And so they were ashamed of themselves, and they hear the approach of God. This is their creator. This is the one who loves them above all else, who designed them in their world. This is God. And how do they respond? Do they flee to him and say, oh, we made a terrible mistake? How can this possibly be made right? Can you possibly forgive us? Do they do that? No, no, they flee from him in guilt and shame. And so much is seen in that action. We could literally spend a sermon on it. But in that fleeing, they show that they've completely lost sight of him. They think they can flee. Just start there. They think they can hide from the creator behind a bush he created. What does this say about their mental state? They think somehow if they're clever and fast enough, they can get away with this rebellion against God. They want to get away with this rebellion against God. They want to have done this and not suffer consequences. What am I describing? Death, death, death. This is all spiritual death that we're seeing here. And so they hide behind the bush from the presence of God. Now, friend, I just want you to understand that at that moment, what we're seeing here is the birth of every cult Every heresy, every apostasy, every false religion, every false philosophy, every false agenda, we see it all born at that moment. And they are practitioners. In fact, they're the inventors. Now, what does Paul say about this in Romans 1? He, he just echoes the same thing in different words. Romans 1.18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What's that suppressing the truth? There's a testimony to God's truth everywhere, and what do we do? We hide behind the bush, as it were, by suppressing it so we don't have to deal with it. That's verse 18 and verse 21. He says, for even though they knew God, and that's true of everybody today, everybody knows God. You say they don't look like it. Oh, no, because even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. So this is the result today of that sin. And man's entire mental process as a result is ruined. Spirituality is mentality. They are one. And so Romans one twenty eight says in a... In a Deft little Greek wordplay, which the LSB preserves almost alone. Verse 128, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. They didn't think God worth knowing, so God gave them a mind not worth having. And that's the result of sin. Spiritual death. Secondly, social death. Immediately, social death. So what do we see in Genesis 3? God comes and calls to them, calls Adam to account. And what does he say? The woman you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate. So he was created alone and God created her to be his helper. And he was out of his mind with joy when he saw her. And she was taken from his side as if to be under his protection and leadership. And what's his first instinct? 
take the girl. His first instinct is to throw her to the wolves in the hope that he can get away, or more exactly, to throw her to the judgment of God in the hopes that he can escape. Why would he do such a thing? Because he sinned, because he's ruined spiritually, and that has social effects. Friend, every divorce has its beginning here. No, I dare say every argument has its beginning here. No, I dare say every angry word has its beginning here. Every rift, every ruined relationship, whether we're talking about two people or whether we're talking about wars or riots or mobs, it all starts here. And it's all because we left God. Because we left God, our Creator. And so, Genesis 3, Adam throws Eve under the bus. Genesis, pardon me. Genesis 4, Cain hates his brother and murders him. Lamech is wounded by a a young man and he murders him. That's just Genesis 4, the next chapter. And then in chapter 6, the world has become so corrupt and so violent that God wipes out the entire human race, except for one family. Genesis 6, 5, Then Yahweh saw the evil of man was great upon the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was corrupt, was only evil continually. And verse 11 says, the earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. That's a result of the fall and God's solution is to wipe them all out except for one family. And does that do the trick? Is that the end of all evil and violence? Does not even miss a step. Does not even miss a step because it's human nature now because of the fall. And so evil and violence continue. In chapter 11, there's an anti-God coalition to rebel against his rule, and so God scatters them by dividing language. In chapters 18 and 19, God picks out one particular pair of cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, so given over to sexual perversion and violence and and antisocial behavior that God destroys them and makes them his emblem, as it were, of his judgment on such things. But this is just social results of the fall. How does Paul reflect on that in Romans 1? Romans 1.26, For this reason God gave them over to dishonorable passions, for their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Even at the fundamental basis of our sexuality, we're socially ruined because of sin. And then he goes on to list the sorts of things that result in uh, those abandoned in sin. Uh, Verse 29, having been filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, and so forth. These are the social results uh, 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 of sin, and they are the social fruits of death. They are how death show in us as a result of sin. And so spiritual, social, And finally, somatic, which is to say bodily. I just needed a third S. I trust you understand. But what it means is bodily. The bodily effects of sin. Immediately, Adam and Eve start to die physically. They start aging. They start dying. They may not keel over for a few years, but death is working in their system. And we see it in chapter 5, just a couple of chapters later. What refrain do we see eight times in chapter 5? And he died. And he died, and he died. 
And that is the tale of our race ever since. <clears throat> Paul <clears throat> reflects that in Romans 1.32. Romans 1.32, And although they know the righteous judgment of, requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So the sin that brings death has our hearty approval and is, uh, in fact, I would say, I mean, obviously you see today, not only is it hardly approved, it's more and more required by law that you approve it too. You're not allowed not to approve it. You can't have uh, uh, thought think. You, have, you can't have thought crimes against what the regime tells us we must believe. And so uh, it's one thing for a man to decide that he thinks he's a woman. It's another thing for him to decide to try to dress up as a woman. It's another thing for him to self get, get himself disfigured so that to him he looks more like a woman. But now the law is going to force you to say he's a woman and to treat him as a woman. And if you don't, why, that could come afoul of legislation, of law, of legal penalties. Just recently, a woman was arrested in England because she stood outside an abortion clinic and privately prayed against abortion. She wasn't holding a sign. She wasn't blocking an entrance. She wasn't moving. The police challenged her and questioned her and asked her if she was praying. And she said, I might have been silently praying in my head. And they say, you're under arrest for that. You look at that and you see our tomorrow here in America. Not only do they give approval, but they more and more are requiring by law that everybody approve with the things that bring death to us. So letter C brings us to our plight. In the course of our plight, P-L-I-G-H-T, our plight, in the course of human history, we've had every kind of leader, we've had every kind of religion, every kind of philosophy, diet, medication. We've had more technological advances, I think, in my lifetime probably than in the history of the world. God provided in Israel an example and incentives of here's the things you should do and I will bless you if you do and punish you if you don't. And still they apostatized and turned away from him. None of these things, absolutely none of these things has addressed the core of our problem. Because what is the core of our problem? Very simply, the core of our problem is that God is not with us. And the reason God is not with us is, say it, sin. Exactly. The core of our problem is we are not at communion with God. We're at war against God. And we're under the wrath of God. And that's caused by our sin. And none of these things can deal with sin. None of these rules or rituals or philosophies or religions or leaders can address sin. And sin is why. We can't invent our way out of it. We can't achieve our way out of it. We can't rationalize our way out of it. We can't discover a solution in ourselves for that problem. Our only hope is God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. Say, that's familiar, isn't it? That comes from a Christmas carol. Does that point us to the solution to the problem? Indeed it does. Taking us to Roman numeral 3, what God does so that we can once more experience God with us. God with us. Romans 3 is, a uh, Roman numeral 3, and Romans 3 for that matter, but Roman numeral 3 is all about what God does to restore us to a state of having God with us. Now, this whole Old Testament, roughly around this big, 
is all preparation, extensive preparation and revelation of God's plan to restore the presence of God to us. I'm just going to sum up the whole Old Testament in a few little points. Nobody should be hurt, so just stay with me. The first thing we see, very simply, is we see extensive pictorial preparation. That's what goes in the blank by number one, pictorial. Pictorial preparation. Three pictures. First of all, we see a national picture in the nation of Israel. God chooses Abram, makes a covenant with him. From him comes Isaac, from him comes Jacob, from him comes the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel, you know, becomes slaves and captives in the land of Egypt. And God comes and redeems them from Egypt. You know the story. Through plagues and mighty displays of his power, culminating in the Passover and the death of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. And with that plague, they're released from Egypt. They come out of Egypt. They pass through the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai to meet in the presence of God. And what was all that about? God says what all that was about. What all that was a picture of in Exodus 19.4. Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, God says. And how I lifted you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. It wasn't about going from one land to another land. It was a picture of people being redeemed from impossible slavery to God. That's what that picture was. Israel was a picture of God redeeming people from hopeless slavery to a relationship restored with Himself. That is, pardon me, That is the national picture. Secondly, we have a structural picture in just a few chapters later. Here in this revelation in Sinai, he reveals the Ten Commandments. And almost immediately, he begins begins giving instructions for creating a structure, a a building. I'll read you Exodus 25, 8 through 9, then talk about it. Well, I'll talk about it as I read it to you. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. God says, and let them make a sanctuary for me. Now, the Hebrew word for sanctuary is mikdash. What it means is a holy place. So this is a place that is set apart to the ownership and service of God. It is a special place set apart to God's ownership and service. A holy place that I might dwell among them. Now here's one of two Hebrew words I need you to hear. Don't be afraid. It won't hurt you. I'll make sure it doesn't. He uses the verb when he says dwell among you. He uses a verb shakan. Shakan. Just kind of keep that sound in your head for a second. That I might shakan among you according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle. Now the Hebrew word for tabernacle is mishkan. Shakan, mishkan. It's from the same verb. That M sound just means it's a place where shakaning happens. Uh, Hebrew professors are holding their ears in pain now. But, but a, a, a mishkan is where you shakan. It's where you dwell. So the meaning of the tabernacle is it's a dwelling place. A dwelling place of what or who? Of God. Dwelling in their midst. This building was a picture of God restored to fellowship. Of God back with us. This is meant to be a, a living, looking at, visible picture of God restored to presence with us. 
And, uh, and we could spend a long time talking about its symbolism, but I just want to seize on one thing. You know that this represents the presence of God in the midst of the nation of Israel, in the midst of their camps. And you come up to this building, this building only has one door. It doesn't have multiple doors, just one door. And you come up to that door, and what do you see? Do you see a mirror so that you can look at yourself and admire yourself and how wonderful you are and how great you are and what a really good person you are? No, what do you see at the doorway? An altar where bloody sacrifices are offered. And what that tells me is I'm a sinner. And the only way to God is through paying that penalty of death. Through paying that penalty of death. And so that leads us into the sacrificial picture. Let her see the sacrificial picture. This is introduced to us right away in Genesis 3, right after the... the uh, the, the, the fall, the first, first thing their guilt seizes on is their nakedness. So God seizes on their guilt, and He does what? He sheds the blood of an animal, an innocent animal that's done nothing. He sheds the blood of an animal. It dies, and they're covered. A substitute dies, and their guilt is covered. That's a picture. And so is bloody sacrifice here a picture. Because in, use, in worshiping at the altar... A man brings a, an innocent uh, a sheep or bull uh, with no flaw. He lays his, head on its he- his hand on its head to designate it as his proxy. And then its throat is slit and it dies a bloody death. And the blood is spattered on the altar. Depicting what? Depicting death for sin. Not my death. A substitute's death. And this is a picture of how God is going to restore man to fellowship with himself through substitutionary atonement, through the price of death paid by another. Leviticus 17.11 paints that out for us. In Leviticus 17.11, God tells us what the sacrifices are all about. He says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, to pay a substitutionary price for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That's what bloody sacrifice is a picture of. An innocent victim dying for my sin. Paying my death price for my sin. So that's the pictorial preparation. Now more clearly we'll see the prophetic preparation. Number two, the prophetic preparation. And we've read uh, some of these scriptures today. It begins in Genesis 3 and verse 15 at the fall as God is pronouncing his curse. He pronounces on the serpent in verse uh, 15, and I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman, he tells the serpent, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So the final conflict is not going to be between the woman and the serpent as you would think. Or between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, as you would think. It's going, to be, it's going to be between the woman's seed and the serpent. Now, there's a couple of things that are remarkable about that. First of all, you wouldn't have guessed those combatants. I wouldn't have either. It's not her, it's her seed that combats the serpent. He strikes the seed on the heel, and so presumably the seed dies. But in that, the seed strikes him on the head, destroying him. But there's something even more strange about this. The woman's seed? Women don't have seeds. 
If you know some biology, you know women don't carry seeds. That's what a man brings to the marriage. He contributes the seed, then comes a baby. A woman doesn't have her own seed, but the woman will have a seed. She'll have a child without a man involved. But he'll be a human being. He'll be her seed, but he won't have a human father. Wow, that's kind of a mind blower. But you see who that seed is or more about it in Isaiah 7.14, which we read earlier. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, a woman who's never had relations with a man, will be with child. Oh, there's the woman who has a seed without a human father. A virgin who is pregnant. A virgin will be with child and bear a son. So he'll be human, but he'll have no human father. He'll have a human mother, not a human father. This is 700 years before the birth of Christ, if you're new to the Bible. And even if you're not, it's still 700 years before the birth of Christ that we're reading this. And she will call his name Immanuel. What does that mean in Hebrew? Oh, I, I promise you no more Hebrew. Sorry, two more. Immanu means with us. Eil means God. The child will be called God with us. So the very thing that's the root of our problem the child is the root of the solution. We are without God. That is the reason for all our misery. The child will be personally God with us. Now, in what way is he God with us? Does he represent God with us? Does he bring God to be with us? What does that mean exactly? Isaiah 9.6 tells us the answer to that question. That's the next scripture. We read it. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Ah, oh, that's this same child. And government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Ever Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Well, there it is. He will be Mighty God as surely as he is Prince of Peace and Wonderful Counselor. He will be Mighty God. So he'll be a human because he's the son of the virgin, but he will be Mighty God because God is his father. A man is not his father. God is his father. It is that God-man person who will bring God to be with us. And how will he do that? So, it, so let's think, let's just stop for a second and think about it. how would he do that? Let's suppose the way he would do that is that he would be God incarnate and he would live among us and he would fulfill all righteousness in his person and he would teach us perfectly the word of God. He would give us a perfect example and it would himself be the presence of God among human society. And my question is, would that solve our problem? Because there's God right there among us. Would that solve our problem? No, it would not. Because the root of our alienation from God is what? Sin. And so if we have a perfect man teaching perfect teachings, setting a perfect example, what will that do to us? Well, first of all, we'd just hate it because we hate God. And we'll hate Him because we hate God. And we'll just triple our damnation because we'll reject who He is. And we'll be no more reconciled to God than we were before He came. That would not solve the problem. It has to be something that finally and fully addresses our sin. And that's the next scripture about the same person. Isaiah 53 verse 5. The whole chapter really. But I'll just read this one verse and allude to another. Isaiah 53 5. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. Well, that's just like we just talked about sacrifices. That animal dies for me, but we know the animal doesn't really take away my sin because I need to bring another one next week. And then I need to bring another one the week after that. My sin doesn't really go away. The animal does not do it. But this 
God with us, Emmanuel, he's crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our peace fell upon him. So the judgment on him brings us peace with God. Why? Because it addresses our sin. It addresses the core problem that is the cause of our ongoing rift from God. And so by His wounds, we are healed. He dies, we're reconciled. He's judged, we're forgiven. This is the one who does the one thing nothing and no one else could do. And so He's like a lamb led to slaughter. He is our sacrifice and our substitute. So, what does all this extensive preparation in the Old Testament lead to in the New Testament? Letter B, an enormous pivot. And I say pivot because this is where everything turns. At this one point, everything turns at this one point, And this one point is not a location. It's not an event. It's a person. This person is the pivot. The event is described in Luke 1, 26-35, and I'll just summarize it. We've read it recently. The angel Gabriel appears to a, a virgin who is of the house of David, who's betrothed to someone from the house of David. She's a virgin. She's had no relations with a man. And the angel says to her, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Wow. Just like we saw in Genesis 3.15. Just like we saw in Isaiah 7.14. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He'll reign on the throne of David. And verse 35, he will be called the Son of God. And there it is. He has no human father. God is his father. He has a human mother. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And it will be the fulfillment of the types as well. That's the event. Now the fuller meaning, number two, is given for us by the Apostle John in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14. He tells us even more about what's going on here in the birth of this child. You perhaps know verse 1 by heart. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything God the Father is, God the Logos is, God the Word is. He is eternal God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word translated dwelt is a Greek word. sounds very much like the Hebrew word for tabernacle. The presence of God. The dwelling of God. This child, this child, God the Word would be God among us. He took on flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the fuller meaning of this birth of Christ. But the fullest meaning and how Jesus changes everything and how this one person addresses our core and most fundamental problem, addresses it and solves it, comes in Isaiah 59.2, reminds us what the problem is. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. How does the Son address that? Not by example, not by teaching. We've already sinned. We're, our lives are already forfeit. We can't make up for that. How does He address our sin? We find that in the birth account in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, just like Luke uh, says that um, Mary is a virgin and she's betrothed and suddenly she's pregnant. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. A virgin, but with child. And the angel says to Joseph in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. So we read that in Luke too. Ah, but the angel adds something here. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he himself will save his people from their sins. That name Jesus, the Hebrew name Yeshua, means salvation. And he'll be called salvation because he will save his people from their sin. He will address and solve the reason why we are alienated from God. That God might again be with us and us back with God. He will do that. And so then verse 23 simply quotes Isaiah 7.14 to make obvious that this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. The birth of the child Emmanuel, God with us. And so Paul describes how Jesus did it. How, why did Jesus become a man? To set an example? That he did. To fulfill the law of God? Well, that he did. To teach the word of God? That he did. To fulfill all prophecy? That he did. But why did he take a human nature? So that he could address sin. He could address the sin problem not just by teaching about it, not just by setting a better example, but by atoning for it. He needed to do that in the nature of a man because it was human sin that was the cause of this. And so it must be a human atonement. And yet the atonement must be of a perfectly righteous human and no natural child of Adam could be perfectly righteous. Too late. We're all guilty in him. So a specially born human being who fulfills all of God's law and who bears our sin in himself and whose life is of infinite value so that even if the number of the elect be countless and extravagant as indeed it is, he could make atonement fully for each and every one of them by the power of his infinitely valuable, precious life, his infinitely valuable, precious blood. Blood. And so Paul says in Colossians 1.22, one of many verses we could quote, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before God holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So much there, but let me slow down just a little bit and highlight it just a little bit more. Now he reconciled you. Jesus reconciled. What does reconcile depict? Two parties who are at war with one another, who are alienated from one another, who are estranged, and who are these parties? Holy God the Father and us His guilty creatures. We are alienated. And Jesus reconciles us. But how does He do that? Again, by example, that would simply damn us. By teaching, that would double our damnation. How does He do it? Paul says, in the body of His flesh. He comes to be the atoning sacrifice for human sin. The body of His flesh through death in order to present you before God holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And one of the perversions of the Gospel is taught, oh no, Jesus saves by His life and His example. No, His life and His example alone would damn us. It's His death that saves us. It's in His death that He bears our bodies, our, our, our sins, as Peter says, in His body on the tree and makes full atonement so that He can say, it is finished paid in full. And only thus, as Paul says, can I be presented before God holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, not in my own self, never in my own self, but in Christ. 
in His righteousness. He receives the judgment I deserve. I receive the love He deserves. That's God's plan of salvation. And so thirdly, the grand result of Jesus' work is the eternal presence of God. He restores God with us by His person and His work on an individual basis and on a cosmic basis. Let's talk just about us personally, the eternal presence of God. A number of scriptures point to this, but John 14.3 is one of them. John 14.3, you know this is on the eve of His betrayal and arrest and crucifixion. And he's teaching the disciples and preparing them. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then in verse 3 he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now let me just pause there. He went to prepare a place. He's not still working on that place. He prepared that place by his death on the cross. It's been ready for 2,000 years. I go to prepare a place for you. With what object in mind? Well, I will come back and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And what is this? Us with God. Us reconciled to God. Us in the place, the only place mankind ever briefly knew paradise, we come to know paradise again in knowing Jesus and being with Jesus forever. Forever. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, speaking of the, the rapture, but this is what the goal is of all of our resurrection, and this is the, the future of every believer. We who are alive and remain will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That's the object. That's the object. Our always being with God. And so Paul says in Philippians 1.23, to depart and be with Christ is far better. In 2 Corinthians, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is the goal. This is the object of salvation. Forgiveness so that we can be reconciled uh, to God. We were enemies, but reconciled, Romans 5 says, by the death of his son. And so Romans 5.1 says, we have, having been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, once again, through and only through Jesus Christ, may we have peace with God. And what we know on an individual basis, but now we still live in enemy territory, we're still surrounded by the miseries of sin, but this is not eternal. Our woes are temporary. For the believer, for the believer, all our pains and woes are temporary. For the unbeliever, all his joys and blessings are temporary. But for the believer, all our woes are temporary. Let me show you what's eternal for the world, for the believer. Number two, for our world. And here I will ask you to turn to the last two chapters of the Bible. Turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Now this is a vision of the eternal state. After the tribulation period, even after the millennial kingdom, now this is the eternal state. <clears throat> this is where everything is headed, and this is where every believer is headed. Unbelievers at this point are in the lake of fire, suffering under the just, just, just judgment of God forever. But this is the future for every believer and the future for the entire world and the entire universe beginning with verse 3. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Not pictorially, not symbolically, but personally. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. And by death, we mean there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Not a pipe dream, not hopeful thinking, not optimism, but the word and the promise of God. This is a certainty. Waking up tomorrow morning, not guaranteed. This, for the believer, certain. Next chapter, verse 22, verses 3 and 5. Still speaking of the eternal state and the eternal city, and there will no longer be any curse. Now there's the cause of all of our miseries, the curse on Adam's sin, the curse on the ground. Everything was affected when Adam fell. But we read here, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will be marked as his by his name on their forehead, and they'll see his face. Now that is what heaven is for the believer. And when the person who, who's all excited about cities of gold and seeing his loved ones again and says, well, if my dog's not there, then I don't want to go, friend, you're not going to go. If, if that's what, I, what heaven is to you, seeing your dog again, I'm sure it was a good dog, but that's not heaven. What makes heaven, he, as he, what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God in peace, seeing the face of God as his people, as his redeemed children, glorified to reflect his glory. That's what heaven is, the presence of God, the presence of the Lamb, seeing his face. Verse 5, we won't need any lamps. The Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. So you see, that, Charlie Brown, is really what Christmas is all about. (laughs) That's what Christmas is all about. All our miseries were caused when we turned against God in sin and rebellion. All our miseries. And the only remedy is restoring us to the presence of God and the only way that can be done is through the final elimination and dealing with sin justly, fully, and the only way that can be done and the only way it has been done is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that leads to us with God for all eternity. So where does this leave us? Well, where it leaves me is is 2 Corinthians 5.20, where Paul says, so then we are ambassadors for Christ as God is pleading through us We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you have not yet made peace with God through Jesus Christ, there will never be a better time. Repent, look to Jesus Christ, call on Him as Savior, plead with Him to save you and have you as His and be your Lord, and Jesus will save you. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. It is as simple as that. The source of all misery is absence from God. The only hope for joy and peace is the presence of God. And only through Jesus do we know the presence of God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. And the happy flip side of that is everyone can come to, the God, to God as Father, but only through Him. He is God with us. And so, if we don't know Him, come to know Him. If you do know Him, then you have reason for joy and rejoicing every day, all your days, and on through all eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this great and glorious truth because the truth is all about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He in whom the Godhead was pleased to dwell to reconcile us to You. To reconcile us to You by giving His life as a ransom for us. A ransom for many. Fully paying the just penalty for our sins. Fully atoning for us that we might be reconciled. With His stripes we are healed. Through Him we come to You in peace. Thank You so much for that great salvation. And I just once more would pray for anyone here who does not know Jesus as Savior that You will open that woman, that man's eyes and lead that person to saving faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.